Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. So hello everybody and welcome back to episode two of The Contest and Me for the 2023 season. It's a podcast, of course, here from us here at the Eurotrip Podcast. I am Rob, and as ever, I'm joined by Mr. James Rowe. James, hello. Hiya, Rob. Hi, everyone. Great to be back again. Episode number two, where we chat to some of the world's biggest Eurovision names to find out a little bit more about them. Uh, Although for the first two weeks, as you will have found out last week, uh, we're doing things a little bit differently. Yes, the world's biggest names from the world of Eurovision. And me and you. (laughs) But yeah, we heard from James, we heard your interview last week. This week, it is me in the hot seat, which is very exciting. So we will be going through all of the usual questions that we ask here on the contest and me. We'll be asking our first Eurovision memories, whether the moment we fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest, our favourite Eurovision year, our most memorable moment, our favourite song. What can the UK do? to get back on the left-hand side. And, James, you said this was the most difficult question last week for anyone that uh, heard last week's episode. You said that the most difficult question we ask is, what is the change you would make if you were in charge of the contest? If you were Martin Osterdahl for a day, what would you do? Yeah, the most difficult question, but probably my favourite because it gets those creative juices flowing and it throws some ideas uh, out and about. So, yeah, we'll be chatting to Rob find out his Eurovision journey uh, on today's episode to find out how Eurovision has been running through his 30 years or so on this planet. 30 years or so, just 30 years, thank you very much. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much if you listened to last week's episode and there is loads to look forward to in store on today's episode of The Contest in Me. Yes, yeah, so here we go then. Uh, second episode of this series of The Contest and Me. Uh, Rob, by the way, you said it was the 2023 season of The Contest and Me. I know it is in 2023, but is this actually the 2024 season and we're just starting with The Contest and Me? It's difficult, isn't it? Because the Eurovision New Year, as we all know, starts on the 1st of September. So mm. arguably, we are technically still at the very end of the 2023 Eurovision year. Is this 2023 Yuletide just before the new year? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're approaching new year. We'll have to buy some party bits for the start of (laughs) September, maybe. Yeah, basically, should we just say this is the third season of The Contest of Me? Because we did The Contest of Me last year, and we did it the year before. So this is the third time we have done The Contest of Me. And what a joy, James, 
it is to have it back because I had a lovely conversation with you last week. And thank you to everyone who has listened, who's got in touch, and who has got in touch, importantly, on the two things that came up on last week's episode. Were you part of the UK's postcard for Eurovision 2014? (laughs) And also, even more importantly than that, have you ever had an iced tea and vodka? (laughs) <laughs> well remembered from those two important points from last week of everything I went through uh, in that chat. The two most important points you've picked out there. Yeah, very well done. Yeah, if you don't know what I'm talking about, definitely go back and listen to last week's episode. As we said, the first episode on this series of The Contest and Me. As always, if you want to get in touch, please do. James will give you the details in just a little while. But James, a lot can happen in seven days in the world of Eurovision, although not normally a lot at this time of year, safe to say. However, since we last spoke to you here on the Eurotrip, of course, James, we got the news of the passing of the UK's first ever Eurovision entry. Yes, we did, didn't we? Patricia Bredin uh, represented the UK back in 1957. So that was the first year that the UK took part. The, uh, they didn't take part in 1956, the first ever edition of Eurovision, but they did come in uh, for 1957. Yeah, so she was the first one to represent the UK. And yeah, unfortunately passed away uh, since we last spoke to you last week. Yeah, so many incredible stories from her life. I mean, if we just go through a few of them, I mean, when it comes to Eurovision itself, of course, she sang the first ever English language song at the Eurovision Song Contest. Think how many English language entries have come since then. At the time, it was the shortest ever entry performed at the Eurovision Song Contest. It was under two minutes. And it held that title, James, until 2015, until the Finnish entry in 2015. And you were also telling me some uh, some incredible stuff about her and, and her appearance in 1957 as well. Yeah, funnily enough, it was just by chance the day before the news of her passing broke that I was reading all about her actually um in a wonderful series of books i think we've mentioned before uh, called songs for europe by gordon roxburgh it's a great series of books and uh, yeah i was just reading that passage where she had recalled taking part in 1957 uh, and she was saying how each conductor would appear with their performer uh, to descend the stairs together to go onto the stage now she'd been given a new conductor wasn't the usual one she would she would work with uh, and then they would split off the conductor would go to the orchestra and then the performer would go to the stage and she said when it came to the united kingdom's turn i was utterly astonished when my conductor eric robinson rushed ahead of me down the stairs leaving me to wind my way down but i had more important things to worry about that's not the etiquette is it it's also very strictly isn't it the start of uh, the start of your song <laughs> you, you descend the stairs but yeah I mean, what a woman. Some incredible stories from her career, her time at the Eurovision Song Contest. And also, James, I think there is a decent chance that she is the only Eurovision entry or participant that has ever gone on to become a dairy farmer. Ding, 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 ding. There is the first question for the week, everybody. (laughs) Do you know of any other Eurovision performer who went on to become a dairy farmer. Do get in touch. We are at Eurotrip Podcast online, uh, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok and threads. We are hello at eurotrippodcast.com on the email as well. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So as we've just said there, rest in peace to Patricia Bredin, the UK's first ever entry at the Eurovision Song Contest, who sadly passed away last week. But James, it is now time for me to sit myself down in the hot seat because, as we revealed on last week's episode, for the first two weeks of this series of The Contest and Me, we're doing things a little bit differently. We might have some new listeners joining us here on the podcast. And because of that, and also for you listeners that have been with us for a long time, but feel like you don't really know me and James that well, we thought we would tell you all about our stories when it comes to Eurovision, so you can find out a little bit more about us. Yes, so I was in the hot seat last week. Rob was asking me all those questions that he mentioned at the the top of the show to find out a little bit more about my Eurovision journey, some of my favourite moments, some of my my first memories, uh, and some things that I'd like to see changed. Uh, But this week, we're switching up. Rob is in the hot seat, so we're going to be finding out all sorts about Rob Lilly. 
Yeah, I was just saying to you, wasn't I, before we start recording today's episode, I'm sure this was the same for you, but this was really enjoyable. Obviously, I was sitting down before this chat and I was thinking about what my answers would be. And it was quite, you know, quite therapeutic. It was quite nice just going back, thinking about it, thinking about the role that Eurovision has played in my life, because you don't often get the chance to just stop and think. So I've really enjoyed this and yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. Well, I think we should get to it. So this is what happened when I caught up with Rob Lilly for The Contest and Me. You're listening to The Eurotrip, your favourite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. So Rob Lilly, welcome to <laughs> The Contest and Me. What an absolute pleasure. I've plonked myself down in a hot seat. I'm ready to go. But yeah, what an absolute joy. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. I'm sure you're a long time listener to the podcast. Um, <laughs> Just one or two. Yeah, plenty of great questions, uh, as we've already mentioned, to come. But let's start with this year, 2023, the contest in Liverpool. Give us your thoughts about the first edition of Eurovision to be hosted in the UK for 25 years. Yeah, first edition of the Eurovision Song Contest to be... I was actually going to make myself younger then. I was going to say to be hosted in the UK in my lifetime. Not true <laughs> at all. Was uh, was five years old when the contest was held in Birmingham in 1998. Yeah, I mean, what a time. I mean, you know this because as everyone listening to this will know who's a long-time listener of the podcast, they'll know that we shared our experience of Liverpool 2023. But what an absolute pleasure it was to be there and obviously, we were very lucky to be in the press centre for the majority of the week. But it wasn't even just that. There was the buzz of waking up in the morning and not really knowing how the day would pan out. And I'm sure you'll agree with this because you'd wake up and it was normally quite early and we'd probably not got that much sleep anyway. And we'd say, what are we doing today? And inevitably, it would always change because you'd always be chasing a story or chasing a guest or going to travel to a hotel to interview, you know, a former Eurovision winner. Like, you know, I think you went and saw Netta in our hotel at one point. It was just amazing to be properly in the heart of it. It felt like it was the first post-pandemic contest, which of course, you know, it was. But that gave it a whole different energy. And it was just, you know, so all-consuming, especially when you're in the press centre and, you know, there is so much enjoyment out of actually having face-to-face conversations with people that we have only ever spoken to virtually on the podcast. You know, whether it be like Toby and Steena from Afton Blood, who we've spoken to on Melfest Monday, or, you know, listening to this, I'm sure many of you also listen to ESC Insights. So we were hanging out with like you and Spence, he was there, and there were so many other people just hanging around. But the very first afternoon when I turned up there on the Monday... Who was there, sat on a sofa, Timur Moroshnichenko. We had a lovely chat with him. Like, these are things that only happen in a Eurovision press centre. So just to be there for the whole week and properly feel like you were at the centre of that huge story for the whole seven days, really, of that Eurovision week was just so special. And the fact that it was in the UK, Liverpool was such a compact host city as well, to see so many new people embracing it as well, it just felt like something we'd never felt before to at a contest. Yeah, I mean, you've said Liverpool's a compact city. Yes, it is. It didn't stop us getting a fair few Ubers, safe (laughs) to say. Although that was, honestly, a lot of the time, just because we had such a tight schedule and, you know, we were working backwards, weren't we, in our head. We were like, well, if we're doing that interview at 12 o'clock over there, but we're doing this other interview in a different part of the city at 11 o'clock, do we have time (laughs) to do that interview and walk there or do we have to get a cab? You know, there are so many amazing times where we'd find ourselves just travelling around the city doing ridiculous things. I mean, the highlight for me from the whole week is just such a bizarre thing that never would have happened had it not been for a kind of chance conversation in the pub when we were having breakfast. But it was one of our friend's brother. Yeah, the brother of one of our friends who was there with us for breakfast had said that his girlfriend (laughs) had got her nails done earlier in the week. And the guy that had done her nails had said to her, no one have got a bit of a weird job this week because I'm actually taking Lorene's nails off after she performs at the Eurovision Song Contest. (laughs) And if you were listening to our coverage live from Liverpool, you'll know that that therefore, you know, resulted in 
me going and knocking on the door of this nail salon, walking in on the off chance that it was the right one, saying, I don't suppose you take Lorene's nails off, do you? And the guy was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's me. And then, you know, just going into the back room and recording an interview for the podcast. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a crazy time. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about Liverpool for another hour or two, but I feel like we shouldn't because we've got so much ground to cover. Maybe 2023 will crop up in some of the other questions. I feel like it might at some point. Uh, But shall we rewind the clock uh, to your very first Eurovision memory? Is this something just rattling around at the back of your head or is this front and centre really prominent memory for you? My first Eurovision memory is clear as day in my mind. And I can, t- I was about to say, I can tell you now, it was a Saturday. Obviously, it was a Saturday. <laughs> uh, it was, it was 2004. So 19 years ago, over 19 years ago, which is terrifying. My parents were having some friends over for dinner. And, you know, they were friends that we'd had over a lot. They're really good friends of my parents. I'm, of course, at this point, 11 years old. And I hadn't really heard much about Eurovision and one of the friends that had come over for this dinner party had said oh well we've got to watch Eurovision and my parents reaction I just remember this at the time my parents were like oh that was like an audible <laughs> sigh that the that they had to potentially put the telly on to watch Eurovision but because you know they were hosting and they were trying to be polite they were like okay we'll put Eurovision on, on TV and I remember it was quite funny because Eurovision was on TV but the sound was really low which kind of defeats the object of watching Eurovision. You don't really hear it properly. But then still, it's visually spectacular. So I guess it draws you in. Well, this is what I was going to say. So we watched it from the start. It was on TV from the moment it started. And obviously, you hear the jingle at the start. You hear Detem. And already, this is different, unlike anything you know I'd seen before. And then there was something very special about the contest in 2004, which I think properly drew me in. And is why I remember it so vividly. Because the contest in 2004 is in Istanbul, in Turkey. You know, a country that don't even take part in Eurovision anymore. And I had no knowledge of, like, Turkey, what Turkish culture was like, what Istanbul looked like. And there is the opening sequence of 2004 where the whole idea is you're you're in, like, a helicopter and you're flying over the city. And, you know, you're going over the, I think it's the Bosphorus River, um, in Istanbul, you know, and, and you see like the minarets and, and and all the incredible buildings and architecture. And it, it just looks so visually different to anything I'd ever seen. And then suddenly you're inside the arena and it looks like the biggest arena. I don't know how they managed to do it with the camera <laughs> shot, but it made the arena look like it had about 200,000 people it in did, it. It did, didn't it? It looked enormous somehow. It was absolutely huge. And then, of course, Sertab Erener then comes on stage. She performs her winning entry from the year before. And from that point onwards, I was like, I mean, this is pretty cool, I think. You know, I'd like to know more about this. But then, as we'll get on to, you know, the first moment I fell in love then comes a bit later on. So obviously didn't fully kind of deep dive into Eurovision from that point. But it was at least on my radar from 2004. It's funny that it sticks in your mind as well, that that's definitely the first time you ever saw it and it still drew you in even though you didn't hear anything. And and some of it was to do with that new culture thing because I guess that's what Eurovision is about a lot of the time, finding out about new countries and new cultures and new languages as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that you know will come up again while we chat, I'm sure. There is something hugely enjoyable about Eurovision that is you know, finding out about different countries and finding out that these countries exist and finding out what they're, what they're like and, and what these host cities are like. And also, you know, as a kid, I've always absolutely loved like geography and flags and capital cities. Yeah, I'm sure there's loads of you listening to this. They're like, yeah, I love a flag. I love a capital city quiz. And I'm exactly the same. And I love a big event like a big sporting event I love the Olympic Games I love the World Cup like whether it's the Women's World Cup the Football World Cup whatever like I love a big sporting event and Eurovision was kind of that but on another level for me yeah I'm sure as soon as you said I love a flag I love my geography everybody else at home is going me too me too I'm one of them I'm one of them um shall we do the moment you fell in love with Eurovision then uh so you were 11 years old you were watching the contest uh when it was in Turkey at what point does it become a bit more on your radar and you're sort of realising that Eurovision is for you? 
I'm going to do a bit of a you here because this is a bit like what you did last week where you kind of take us to that moment from uh, from your first memory. So obviously, as you said, first memory is 2004. 2005, I don't have any recollection of watching at the time. 2006, I can kind of remember some bits. But again, I think, to be honest, it was probably like news footage of the winner. You know, we all know who the winner was in 2006. Obviously, it's Lordy. So obviously, the news channels are, are going mad for that. And that, again, is another kind of nugget in my mind that almost helps get me to the point at which I fall in love because it kind of reminded me, oh, Eurovision's quite fun, having seen Lordy. And I think, actually, now I'm remembering this, and this is only kind of coming into my mind while we're talking I think I do remember turning on the TV and the credits were rolling and Lordy were doing doing their like reprise but I hadn't seen any of the rest of the show <laughs> and I think a bit like you when you said this during our chat last week you were almost a little bit mad that you'd missed it that yeah. you didn't know that you would be mad that you'd missed it because you didn't know that you actually cared so then the year that I remember actively falling in love and watching the whole show for the very first time live would have been 2007. So this is the contest in Helsinki. And there, I can remember so many things of this contest. Like I can remember the names of the hosts like that. Like if you said, <laughs> who has a Jewish in 2007? I could say it was uh, Mirko Lippi-Lampi and Jana Palkinen. I can tell you that already. Some great and names, by the way. <laughs> brilliant names. Mirko Lippi-Lampi. Uh, by the way, I've tried to get him on the podcast so many times just because I want to meet the man who hosted <laughs> the, the first Eurovision that I remember falling in love with because he's got the best name ever. You know, I can remember that opening sequence where You've got Lordy going through the like Arctic tundra in Rovaniemi, and then you know they obviously burst on stage. I remember 2007 as well for the longest semi-final ever. I think it's the longest semi-final in Eurovision history. And I think I remember watching some of that, but not in full. I think there were like 28, 29 yeah, songs. 28, wasn't there? Yeah. There were more songs in the semi-final in 2007 than were in the final, which is hilarious because that was the last year of one semi-final. But yeah, there were so many things that I can remember. And I remember kind of what was happening in the world at that point in terms of... And I remember what was happening in terms of like where my parents were because my parents... It was a lovely sunny day and it was one of those really light evenings. So my parents were in the garden and they were doing some gardening. So I was left to my own devices and I was like, well... If I've got control of the telly, why don't I watch Eurovision in full? And I like remember like shouting out the kitchen window to my parents in the garden, being like, the UK are on now. <laughs> or like, you know, oh, you should see Ukraine. Like, it, there's so much like glitter and silver. And he, it, like they're called like Verka Saduchka. And this <laughs> song's incredible. You know, there are so many things about the 2007 contest that just are so vivid in my mind. You know, that is the year we got to see Berkus Aduchka on the Eurovision stage for the first time. Malit for that winning song from from Serbia. You know, I didn't know anything about Serbia at that point. And there was something very exciting for me about knowing that Serbia had won because I, at, at this point, had kind of knew what the rules were. And I was like, that means Eurovision next year is probably going to be in Serbia. Like, that's mm. really exciting. That's a country I don't know anything about. There are so many, so many things that I just remember. So, you know, from that point onwards, I was a, a absolutely categoric, fully signed up member of the Eurovision fan club. I'm trying to work out what that moment was then for, for you to actually fall in love. Was, it, was there a specific thing? Or do you think it was just having control of the telly, kind of knowing that it was going to be on, so that excitement was building because you were definitely going to be able to watch it again. And then, you know, some of, you know, seeing Virgo Sadushka perform for the first time. Like, was it a specific moment? Or do you think it was just all of these elements put together that really drew you in? There were some specific songs that I really, really remember. And they helped kind of solidify 2007 as me genuinely being in love with this thing. And for me, Romania was one of them, which I think the song's called like Luby Luby, I Love You. People are like really remember it. It like gets faster and faster and faster and faster as the song keeps going on. 
and James, I'm going to keep talking because at this point, I'd like you to get the running order up for Eurovision 2007 if you possibly can. <laughs> because I think I'm right in saying, I mean, we can almost pinpoint the, the moment that I fall in love with the Eurovision Song Contest to the minute if we knew when the broadcast started. You know, we could say like <laughs> it happened at 9.47 p.m. on Saturday, the whatever it was of May in 2007. Am I right in thinking you might tell me I'm completely wrong? Am I right in thinking that Scooch for the UK and then Verka Scooch for the for Ukraine were like one after the other, or they were like super close. Yes, yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so remarkably, actually, so 17th in the running order was Serbia, who went on to win. Ukraine were then 18th, so Virgo Sadochka, and then 19th uh, was Scoot. So yeah, the three of those actually were all back to back later on in the running order. So there you so are. So that was the uh, moment. Wh- that's the, if we pick the minute. <laughs> uh, whatever time that was on that Saturday evening. I fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest between songs 17, 18 and 19 of Eurovision <laughs> 2007. Um, let's do your favourite Eurovision year. Now this can, as we say, be for any reason, whatever you want. It could be that you were there or it could be for a certain contest that you loved watching on TV. What do you think it is for you? Can I surprise you and I'll say a year. This isn't my favourite year, but this made the shortlist. And I'm going to say this year, and you're going to be shocked, I promise. Okay. 2022. 22. Oh, last year. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can, well, yeah, interesting. If people were <laughs> listening to us last year, they might be thinking that is a bit peculiar. But obviously for you, I guess, for other reasons. Yeah. So 2022 is one of my favourite ever Eurovision years because it's the first year that I covered Eurovision as a journalist. And obviously it was the same for you as well. It was the first year that we were on location at Eurovision for the podcast. And there was just something incredible about that moment where you get your accreditation and you walk into the press centre and you're like, you know, I want to be like, I want to say, you've made it. I mean, I don't know what you've made exactly. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not this like incredible thing. You can apply for accreditation and you get it. But there was something about being there that was amazing. And also... Favourite isn't the word, but I'll never forget 2022, you know, whether it's us in the embassy watching Sam Ryder perform in Milan and then the point at which you realise your bag's been nicked. (laughs) We'll never forget that. I'll never forget sitting on the floor of the metro station in Milan with you looking at my phone going, well, there's only one bus we can get, James, and it gets us back to Turin at what time? Five in the morning? (laughs) I will never forget those moments. So, you know, favourite maybe isn't the right word, but 2022 is a year that will always stay with me. Uh, Very, very quick mention for for 2021 as well. So the year before, the first year that we covered Eurovision here on the podcast. Of course, we were doing it virtually at the time. But my favourite Eurovision year, and I don't think you could have got this in an hour and a half of guessing. Is it like everyone else 2016? It's not 2016, I promise. Can you imagine? It's 2003. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, a contest that you hadn't even watched live. Yeah, so it's a contest that I came to retrospectively once I knew that Eurovision was a thing that I wanted to uh, wanted to get myself properly involved in. And the reason I love 2003 so much kind of comes back to something we were saying a little bit earlier, which is it's an opportunity for you to discover countries that you didn't really know anything about. So 2003 was hosted in Riga, in Latvia. I didn't know anything about the Baltic nations at this point. So that was really exciting to kind of find out more about Latvia and and see, you know, Riga in the postcards. I can remember in the opening sort of sequence, if you will, Elton John came on and I think he was talking live from I think it was the AIDS ball in Vienna but he was talking to the hosts uh Reynard Kalpers was was one of the hosts who of course was the the lead singer of Brainstorm who represented Latvia in 2000 and Marianne was with him she'd won Eurovision for Latvia the year before they had brilliant chemistry between the two of them the stage looked massive, like it was so kitsch and camp, but huge, <laughs> like it was like glittery, like yellows and oranges. But then there were so many storylines from 2003 that make it so memorable and, and do make it my favourite year. I mean, the obvious one, of course, is the UK, our first ever Nord with uh, with Gemini, who me and you had the pleasure, if that's the right word, of 
seeing perform live at the Euro Club. I missed them. I didn't even go you that didn't night. Come that no, night. no, because I'd been oh. up at about four o'clock in the morning to do some other bits and bobs, and I was knackered, so I didn't even see them. I'm good. Uh, of course. Now that was the hilarious contrast for anyone that was in the Euro Club on on the Friday night. I think this was. So this is when we're all kind of looking at our phones, waiting for the running order as well at the time. So this the was Liverpool, final. by the way, wasn't it? Early this year. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, this was in Liverpool, and um, yeah, this is the first time that Gemini had performed Crybaby, I think, since Eurovision two thousand and three. But you had this hilarious situation where, because in the Euro Club in Liverpool, you had two separate rooms and two separate stages. In one room, you had Gemini. And in the other room, performing at exactly the same time, I think I'm right in saying this, you had Cornelia Jacobs, which is two <laughs> very, very different artists. But anyway, that's that's got me uh, sidetracked from why 2003 is my favourite year. So yeah, there are so many stories in there, like Gemini, for example, and Nilpa for the UK. But there are so many brilliant, brilliant songs from 2003. And I think it is the songs that do it for me. So we've got uh, Dime by Beth for Spain. That's an incredible song. Mickey Joe Hart, someone we've spoken about so many times here on the podcast. He's been on the podcast. Belgium sang in a made-up language in <laughs> 2003 and very nearly won the thing. And then maybe there is a full circle moment in, of course, Turkey then win the contest that year with Sertab Eriner. And then that is then the contest that I first remember watching. So maybe there is something for me in that full circle moment, which is why I, I really do love 2003. I'm surprised you said 2003 being your favourite and you didn't even mention the sort of plasticine looking graphics either. Yeah, the plasticine animals. I don't, were they snails? I don't even know what they were. I forgot I about them. I remember what they were. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Quite, yeah, a unique presentation style at least anyway. Um, okay, so from uh, your favourite Eurovision year, shall we do your most memorable Eurovision moment. Again, it can be something that happened to you in person or it could be something that you saw on TV during a certain contest, just something that really stands out when uh, whenever somebody says the word Eurovision to you. Well, your most memorable moment last week, again, not to be a spoiler for anyone that's not listened to it yet, but <laughs> it, it is a, a, mo- a memorable moment that many, many people will have, of course, which was, you know, seeing Eurovision live for the very first time. So I think for you, that was, that was in Lisbon, wasn't it, in, in 2018? You know, for me, my first Eurovision in person was was 2015, as I as I've already mentioned last week. But that's not my most memorable moment. I'm going to do again like a short list, very very briefly, and I promise it will be brief. Just some honourable mentions, absolutely. Go for it. Honourable mention, and I'm not sure if this counts because this is a a memorable moment for me that wasn't actually at Eurovision. It was before Eurovision. Do you remember uh, making your mind up the UK national selection in 2007? Do you remember what happened? Was that the where they announced both the winners? Where they both announced the winners, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Terry Wogan announces Cindy, and Fern Cotton announces Scooch, <laughs> and they both shout them at the same time. But because Terry Wogan's louder than Fern Cotton, everyone thinks Cindy's won. And tonight, I can reveal the act that will represent the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland on May the twelfth at Helsinki will be. Another retrospective memorable moment that I go back and watch quite a lot, the opening of Eurovision 1990. And again, it comes back to that kind of fascination with geography and all things that were unknown to me at the time. Uh, So that contest in 1990 was held in Zagreb in Yugoslavia. Didn't know anything about, at that point, Yugoslavia, obviously now the capital of Croatia, and have since kind of read loads about you know the conflict in in the Balkans and, and the war that, that took place there and kind of the the role that 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 Eurovision plays in that conflict as well is quite fascinating because that was kind of just before the breakup of Yugoslavia starts so the opening of, of Eurovision 1990 stays with me clearly I love an opening by the way because my most <laughs> memorable moment is also an opening sequence of a Eurovision Song Contest. I think I know what this is going to be because I'm sure you've mentioned this before I'll not ruin it just in case I'm wrong but yeah go for it. 
I think you know exactly which one it is. And I think I mentioned it when we were chatting to someone or I was chatting to someone on the contest in me last year. So my most memorable Eurovision moment of all time is the opening of Eurovision 2000. I'm sure you've mentioned this before, and I'm sure you also mentioned it when you spoke to uh, Katis Alström, who hosted Eurovision 2000. You spoke to her a couple of years ago on the pod. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, she, uh, in that interview, I think I remember she told me that she whacked her head and gave herself quite severe concussion just before the <laughs> grand final, when she was rehearsing in the in the bowels of the arena, I think, the night before. But yeah, there is something special about the opening for Eurovision 2000 because, of course, we're at the turn of the millennium. It's in Sweden. And because it's in Sweden and they're quite high tech and, you know, everything's quite slick and runs really well. I just remember it feeling so futuristic and so exciting. And it was the way that it builds, you know, you have that voiceover, the female voice announcing the names of the countries, of course. You know, we've just heard that. And then there is that ultimate climax where you go into the arena, there is a single spotlight on the stage with the young girl who literally is stood in silence and then she just breaks silence and just shouts, welcome Europe. And then the whole arena goes mad. Like, I've, <laughs> I genuinely, I've got like... I did. I've got my... My yeah. hair, my hair's <laughs> on end on my arm now thinking about it. I've got like goosebumps thinking about it. Like, yeah, it just hits different. It does. And it, as soon as you see that as well, it's very what Melfest is still to this day, isn't it? Where, you know, you get to see that arena for the first time and the audience is full of families who are just there for the same thing. It's just that feeling of euphoria, isn't it? Because you know what's about to come. That was an unexpected pun, I assume. You're saying it, it was a feeling yes, of euphoria. It, it wasn't <laughs> deliberate. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know what could top that, to be honest, for me. Uh, you know, that, that happened... 23 years ago I wasn't even watching live at the time I was only seven when that happened but you know that still hits different for me every time I watch it well given we've had so many moments from before you actually watched Eurovision live we then move on to favorite Eurovision song is that is that something else like before you were born perhaps well what we're gonna go for here yeah James let me take you back to the 1956 year no Again, there are a few here that that obviously come to mind. And yes, James, some of them are not before I was born, but I wasn't very old. So, Velva Camigo, Spain, 1995, is really, really good. I really love that. I feel like it's so powerful. Uh, Yelise, uh, Fuma di Parole, 1997, Italy, their last song, I think, their last entry before they withdrew from the contest and didn't come back again until 2011. And then we'll talk about three. So in the third place in my uh, top songs, if you will, if I were to make a YouTube uh, video of this, <laughs> number three uh, would be, and I feel like this is because like we have special memories of this entry for different reasons, but number three would probably be We Are Dommy Lights Off from mm-hmm, 2022. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we formed such a special like, bond with uh, Benjamin, Casper and Dominica from We Are Dummy on the podcast. And like, I feel like we're almost like, we're almost mates with them. Like, we're almost <laughs> friends. 
Like we went to the pub with them in Prague earlier in the year. So we'll put this to them and we'll see we'll see if they agree. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I remember as well, um, because again, not to like, you know, it's not really it's not really a name drop, but like the accreditation I had for 2022 was an access all areas accreditation. And I remember sitting in the green room, like in the booths that the delegations sit in for We Are Dommy's first rehearsal. And just seeing the visuals of that for the first time and being like, I mean, this is, you know, better than anything I could ever have imagined. Um, so, yeah, so they're up there. The other one is potentially the one that I think you thought I might say is my favourite song uh, is from 2006. And this is Norway, 2006. Uh, so this is Christine Goldbranson with Alf Danson. I did um, think this was going to be your number one. Yeah. yeah. It's really like ethereal, this song. And it's very Scandi and they know exactly what they're doing because it's just blonde women in white dresses with no shoes on and <laughs> violins. Like it, it, it's very Norwegian. It's very of its time. But again, for me, that's kind of why it's perfect because it was it was the ultimate Eurovision 2006, what Norway would obviously send, if that makes any sense. I absolutely love it. But my favourite Eurovision song of all time, James is from 1998. So the last time Eurovision was in the UK before this year. And it's a song that I only came to properly a few years ago. And uh, it comes from one of the hosts of Eurovision 2021. Uh, it's Edcilia Romley and Hemel uh, Erde. Well, I was not expecting that. Where did that come from? I absolutely adore that song. From the first bars of that song, you know it's going to be an absolute banger. And it is the epitome for me of a Eurovision song that is all killer, no filler. Like <laughs> Every moment of that song deserves to be there. You know, you're not like waiting for the verse to end so you can get to the hooky chorus. It is brilliant. I think it's so powerful. She's such a brilliant performer. I think when you watch the live performance of that song, you know, she is so engulfed in what she's trying to do. And it's also at a time when the orchestra was still there if you wanted it. I think, you know, I think in 1998, you could use the orchestra if you wanted, but you didn't necessarily have to. I think that's right. And she did use the orchestra. And it was one of those brilliant examples where the orchestra just elevated the song, which is why it would be nice to have the orchestra back. But that isn't one of my changes, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was just kind of perfect. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say the Netherlands were robbed in, uh, in 1998. but And we got obviously a hugely iconic winner that year anyway. But, uh, but yeah, Edcilia Romley, she should, she should have been holding that, that Eurovision trophy in 98 in Birmingham. So she came fourth in the end, didn't she? So yeah, a pretty decent result. But how how did you how did you get to that song? Like, how did you come across it, and how how did it end up as your number one? I think I think I discovered it in the same way that I think many people listening to this will discover Eurovision songs from contests that they potentially didn't watch at the time. Just love a recap video, you know. You just st stick on a random year. Just type it into YouTube. I clearly, I'd done Eurovision nineteen ninety eight recap. I'd watched a lot of that contest anyway because, you know, knowing that that was the last time Eurovision had been in the UK, obviously before this year, I'd wanted to see what we'd done and what the contest was like in Birmingham. And then I'd obviously got intrigued about what songs were were performed that year. And you've got like Guido Horn for Germany that year, which was a, a mad song. And, uh, and then, yeah, I was doing a bit more research. I, I listened to the full recap and that song, as well as Imani, I should say, as well for the UK that year, you know, those songs just really stand out, but the Netherlands especially. Yeah, it's worth going back to uh, one of our episodes we did last autumn as part of our first Rewind series. So Rewind 1998, go back and listen to that. We sort of do a bit of a deep dive uh, all about the contest in Birmingham with some of the people that were there. Definitely worth your time going back to listen to that. Um, right then, Rob, we've done 
some of uh, some of your favourite stuff and, and your memories and that sort of thing. But let's look ahead. Uh, we need to talk about the UK, uh, as, as we do at this point, and we need to talk about how the UK get themselves back to the left-hand side of the leaderboard. Uh, in your little notebook of ideas and stuff like that, what is written on the page entitled UK? Uh, so I've written down uh, four words for what, for what the UK um, could do. Bring uh, back is... Engelbert Humperdinck. Bring back <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is four words. It's weirdly not that. Um, so the four words I've written down for what the UK could do to improve their fortunes and return to the left-hand side are send rock or folk. That's what I've written. Oh, okay. Because I love pop music as much as the next person. I would argue probably more than the next person. I love like a dirty banger. Like I love it. Like <laughs> I was a big fan of uh, of our entry in 2023 with Maymala. Really like the song. Still listen to it now. Big fan of kind of all of the big like poptastic songs we've sent in the past. But we've sent pop a lot recently, and or well, not even just recently. We've sent pop a lot for decades. It feels like now. Maybe, you know, you joked about Engelbert, but that's probably the last time we didn't send anything that was <laughs> categorically pop music. But for me, we we just try something different. Let's send a different genre. We saw this year, and this is where I got the idea from, we saw this year in Melody Festivalen that a rock band almost got the ticket to represent Sweden. I mean, they didn't almost because, of course, Lorene ran away with it in the end, but they still finished third. I'm talking about Smash Into Pieces uh, and their entry for Sweden this year. I think we should send something like that. I think there are so many brilliant British like rock pop bands. So we don't need to go like too far away from the genre that we've been sending previously. But you know, if you think about like Bring Me the Horizon, for example, or somebody like that, let's just send something a little bit different. And people know Britain for for rock music. People know the UK for that genre. So let's do it. And and then I just had a thought at the end. I was like, all folk, maybe. Because <laughs> Again, you know, there's some brilliant folk music in the UK. It's probably not a genre that we've seen do particularly well at Eurovision. So, you know, that might be a bit bit of an ask. But I remember going to watch Eurovision You Decide, which I think it was called at the time. So it was the first one we had uh, in 2016. So it was when we sent Joe and Jake eventually. And I think that year um, there was a duo called Darlene, I think. And they had a really, really good song. I think they were my favourites going into the into the selection. And again, I just liked it because it was a bit different. It was two girls, two guitars. That that was that was all it was. And it doesn't necessarily need to be more difficult than that to do well at Eurovision. And, and maybe sometimes we we potentially overthink it slightly. Yeah, I think many people think the Eurovision Song Contest has to be effectively a popular music contest in a way, don't they? And never, and maybe we fall into that trap as well. Perhaps I'm not sure. But then sometimes you have to give yourself that opportunity to think outside of the box and go, well, what if we sent rock or folk or something in the Welsh language? I'm sure somebody on the contest and me suggested that in the past. I think Steve Rosenberg, the the BBC's uh, Russia editor. So sometimes it might be worth going a little bit rogue if it does indeed just help you stand out on the stage. And we don't necessarily, this is kind of a different point, we don't necessarily have to send someone from England either. Like we are the United <laughs> Kingdom and we tend to more often than not send someone from England. I mean, I guess it makes sense because England makes up the, the majority of the population of the United Kingdom. But, you know, we've had a few Welsh entries down the years. Lucy Jones, I think, was it Joe from Joe and Jake, I think mm-hmm. is, is Welsh and James Fox. But nobody's Scottish since 1988. Is that not the mad statistic? Exactly. So since Scott Fitzgerald, was mm-hmm. he not the last Scott that we sent to the Eurovision Song Contest? So, you know, let's let's branch out a little bit. A, a Scottish rock band. There you go. That's what I want next year. <laughs> there you go. Put that on your bingo sheet for next year and see if the BBC do indeed send a Scottish rock band. Is there a Scottish rock band? There must be, like a big one. And also, before anyone listening to this reads too much into this, I should add that despite the fact we had Lee and Dan on from the BBC Eurovision team very recently, me and James don't know anything about who may or may not be representing the UK Eurovision. (laughs) And if it happens to be a Scottish rock band, that is complete coincidence. I just wanted to put that out there. Or whoever the head of delegation is next year has just been entirely inspired by by what you've just said. Uh, We'll uh, we'll soon see. Well, probably not soon. Maybe he's in quite a few months' time. 
Anyway, Rob, last question of the set. My favourite and perhaps the most difficult. The one change you'd like to make if you were in charge of the Eurovision Song Contest. What have you got for me? Okay, I've got two and I know you've just said one, but I've got two because one is a thing that I know will definitely never happen. And then one is a thing that could happen. That's okay. Um, well, I had three last week, and yeah. since chatting, I've got another one. So <laughs> it does fine. <laughs> so my my like fantasy thing will never happen and could never happen, um, but would properly make it a, a song contest. Anonymize the countries. I don't know how you could ever possibly do it, but if you didn't know which country had submitted which song, and it would you know ruin the whole joy of of selection season and the pre parties and all of it. But if you didn't know what country had sent what song, I mean, think what we could end up with. Like, it probably would end all neighbour voting or voting for somebody because you, you know, love them as an artist and love them before Eurovision or, or any of that stuff. It would it would get rid of all of the the additional political nonsense that, that sometimes comes up. But it will never happen. I was going to say, it's entirely unrealistic. But, yeah, as an idea... It would be great just to see how that would play out, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I would. I would say I'd love to see it. I wouldn't love to see it. It's just an idea. Uh, <laughs> the thing that I would love to see, however, uh, and there's so much discourse, isn't there, around at the moment about juries and and the influence of the jury at the Eurovision Song Contest. I have to put it out there. Don't fiddle with the the kind of percentage of of tally vote and jury vote because. Anyone listening to this who remembers what Eurovision was like when it was 100% televote, I don't want to say it was horrible, because obviously we still watched it, but it was quite horrible. Like, it was it was full of novelty entries, of which there is always a place for at Eurovision, but it was novelty entries. The right winner still didn't always win, and it just cheapened the whole thing. So keep it 50-50. I mean, if it has to be 60-40, I can probably live with that, but probably keep it 50-50. But just make the juries bigger. It's a huge bugbear of mine, and I know it's difficult for some of the smaller nations anyway, but it's a huge bugbear of mine that five people hold the same weight of points for a country as an entire nation voting. Is that not mad? One person is worth 10% of a country, country's points that they give out at Eurovision. That is mad. It's even more remarkable, actually, this year, because I think there was a couple of countries, Ireland and I don't remember the other one, who only had four jurors. So it was an even smaller pool who had, you know, a lot more say than, you know, just somebody sitting, sitting at home. But, you know, equally, I know you mentioned that there, it's difficult for some of the smaller countries. I know... Uh, we've had Yon Lassand on before, the former executive supervisor of Eurovision. And he said when we spoke to him or when you spoke to him a couple of years ago, I think he wanted to expand the juries. But for countries like San Marino, whose population, you know, is you could fit them in the palm of your hand. It's so difficult to source a, a jury that's any bigger than five. And there, there are clips as well on our socials from when we were in Liverpool this year of, of me sitting down with uh, with Martin Ustadal, the, the current executive supervisor, and I do say to him at the time, I'm like, is there a, a future where Eurovision might be 100% televote? And he doesn't rule it out. And that genuinely does worry me for all the reasons I've just given. But yeah, make the jury bigger. But if you can't make the jury bigger, make it more prescriptive who those people should be. Yes, we hear this kind of catch-all term for like music industry professional, which is kind of what they, they end up being at the moment. And yeah, there is something to that. But at the end of the day, it's just, what's your favourite song? And how is that any different to the televote, really? So do you do a Melfest thing? And is it like, is it a demographic thing? Like, do you have like someone who is a, a, like a child and then a teenager and then someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Is that how you do it? I don't know how you do it. I'm not paid by the EBU to do it. <laughs> but I just think they should do something with the juries. But whatever they do with the juries, definitely keep them. Very well said. Well, there you go. 
Thank you, Rob, for your wonderful ideas. You can package that into an envelope and send it off to uh, Geneva <laughs> and EBU headquarters and see what they've got to say <laughs> about that. Uh, this has been great fun. Rob, thanks so much uh, for donating so much of your time to this great podcast of mine and yours uh, <laughs> to chat all about uh, the where Eurovision has run its course through your life. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm sure me and you should probably do this this again, this whole recording a podcast together thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you you know full well I really enjoyed it and uh, hopefully you listening did as well. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Jane. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we'd be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Eurotrip, the world's favourite Eurovision podcast. When you aren't listening, find us on social media at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Hello, it's me. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back as a co-host of The Eurotrip but no longer interviewee. I don't know if we'll ever get the chance to, to be interviewees on our own podcast <laughs> again, but over the last two weeks, James, we've done it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's good fun, isn't it? You know, obviously I did this last week. Uh, you're, you've just done it now. Uh, it's good to sort of sit down and, and tell your side of the story. I wouldn't like to do it regularly. I don't like to sort of put myself under the spotlight regularly. But uh, yeah, just to sort of have that therapeutic nature about it. It was quite good. Yeah, who'd have thought it? When people ask you questions, you have to actually think of the answer. It's, it's not so <laughs> difficult when you're the person asking the questions. But uh, yeah, no, there were so many things that came up there that you know, I wasn't even expecting would necessarily come up. But I mean, the fact that I think we managed to pinpoint the exact, almost to the moment moment when I fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest was uh, was pretty impressive. Yeah, we're looking for that timestamp, by the way. If, uh, if you were listening, we're looking for the exact minute and second that Rob fell in love with Eurovision. Uh, so yeah, as a, as a reminder, what was it? Songs 17, Songs, 18, 19, yeah. at some point during that, that was the moment. Somebody gets that timestamp. Do let us know. Uh, but yeah, there we go. That is me and Rob Don. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, we've got plenty more guests to come uh, over the coming weeks, uh, having their moment in the spotlight here on the contest and me. Actually, I, I was going to say, I was going to wrap up there, but can I tell you my fourth change that I would make <laughs> to the Eurovision Song Contest? Only because I was thinking about it over the past week or so. And this is probably the most realistic suggestion that I've got. In that, they should move, bear with me, move the days of the semi-final to Monday and Wednesday. Yes, we've had this conversation, just me and you, before, because there's the whole thing about the artists in the second semi-final don't feel like they've got enough time to prepare for the final, do they? Exactly. You come off stage from a semi-final two performance, you're probably coming off stage after being announced as a qualifier about quarter past ten, and then you've got about an hour of a press conference, and then maybe some other media commitments, and then 
you know, 12 o'clock, one o'clock the next day, then you're rehearsing for the, for the, the, what would it be? The first dress rehearsal. It's not even a jury show by then, obviously, but the first dress rehearsal for the final is the day after, like 12 hours later almost. So yeah, I feel like pushing them back a day or moving it forward, whichever way that works. Monday, Wednesday, and then a day off on the Thursday for everybody uh, to sort of reset. I'm now just thinking about that. what that would mean. A, a semi-final one jury show, although not really a jury show anymore, on, on a Sunday night. I mean, mm. I, uh, I've had worse Sunday evenings, I suppose. <laughs> I know, it's a really good idea. And I remember a conversation that I think we had with, we mentioned them earlier on in today's episode, with, with Domi from, uh, from We Are Domi. And, you know, she was saying how difficult it was for her voice. And I think, you know, watching that performance, you will understandably recognise that her vocals in that second semi-final were better than her vocals in the grand final, because, of course, they closed the second semi-final and then opened the grand final. It's not a lot of time to give your voice a rest. So, no, good idea. There you go. Uh, keep your ideas coming in as well. And any other thoughts and suggestions and questions and ideas, anything you've got for us, uh, we love it when you get in touch. We're online at YouTube Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Threads. Uh, we're also on the email as well. Hello at YouTubePodcast.com. And we will be back next week for another edition of The Contest in Me. And for the first time this series, we will be putting somebody else in the uh, in the chair to be interviewed and so to say they are a very familiar voice and face from the world of the Eurovision Song Contest indeed they are so make sure you tune in next week in seven days time for that brand new episode in the meantime as well make sure you subscribe leave us a review and rate us five stars from me James it's goodbye and from me Rob it's goodbye Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.